See, our scripture lesson this morning is John chapter 20. That's not true. That was last week. That was Sunday. John 7. We were in John a little bit last week. We were in John um, on Good Friday. Uh, we were in John on um, Sunday as well, kind of jumping around a little bit. Last week, we looked at Palm Sunday. Um, so we're back where we left off a couple of weeks ago. That'd be three weeks, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. And we're in John 7. We're going through the book of John. We're in chapter 7. Let me read to you our scripture lesson this morning, and then um, we will dismiss the kids. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four accounts, one gospel. His name is Jesus. Four accounts. John, the fourth one. Chapter 7. Let's pick up at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? We know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who has sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Verse 31. Yet many other people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32. Then the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. One more time, before we go to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we rejoice in your uh, leaving us not as orphans, but giving us not only your spirit, but your word. And Lord, we ask that as we look to what is happening in this narrative, uh, Lord, we would get the point uh, of who you really are, Lord Jesus. Help us to see that, Lord. We know that we can't do this on our own. Uh, Lord, we need you to open our hearts and our minds to see Christ. Maybe there's someone here, Lord, that has never seen you and and will see you today because your word is preached. But Lord, may your children as well be encouraged. May their faith continue to grow as we see the unbelievable beauty and glory, majesty and worth of Christ today. In his name we pray, 
Amen. All right, kids, you're dismissed. Let's keep our Bibles open to John chapter 7. We're going to be in John 7 today and next week. Um, you can follow everything online, our teaching online at kingschapel.net. Uh, we have podcasts, video, downloads. Um, you can download our sermons, the CDs in the back as well. Um, and we're in chapter 7. Now the scene or the setting in chapter 7, let me just set the scene for you. Jesus is at the end of his Galilean ministry. John doesn't really cover it. The other synoptic gospels do. Um, and he'll never return to Galilee until the crucifixion. Uh, and we're in, as I said a couple of weeks ago, we're in the third year of Jesus' ministry called the year of opposition. The near inauguration, the year of popularity, the year of opposition. We're months away from Calvary. If you remember from three weeks ago, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 10, Jesus is encouraging his disciples, his brothers, his half-brothers, Mary had children, to go into advance into Jerusalem ahead of him because it was Feast of the Booths, Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, also known for. It was one of three feasts where men were mandatory to go. Able-bodied Jewish men were going to Jerusalem to worship and to uh, be part of that feast. It was one of the feasts, tabernacles, where they were gathered together celebrating um, and recalling God's provision for them as they were uh, during that wilderness of wandering through the wilderness after being rescued from the Egyptian slavery in Egypt. And as they were wandering, God provided for them. And the festival lasted about seven days. And on the eighth day, it culminated in the celebration of this this festival celebration on the eighth day. Next week, we're going to look deeply into this festival because it really does show us Christ. Um, so I'll just say it's seven days. On the eighth day, they have this big party. Uh, they would make booths. They would, that's why it's called the Feast of Booths, provide, showing how God provided for them 40 years in the wilderness. Um, if they were in the rural areas, they would build these makeshift um, out, on, out on the lawns, and they would have these uh, booths built from um, these leaves. In the city, they would put them on their rooftops, and they would stay in these, these booths for a week, remembering God's wonderful provision. It was, this festival happened right after the Day of Atonement, so there was a lot of joyous celebration of forgiveness of sins as they celebrated the Feast of pa- uh, Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Okay, And we notice in our text in chapter 7 that Jesus' own brothers, while in Galilee, wanted Jesus to go ahead into Jerusalem with them. Verse 3, his brothers said to him, Jesus, let's get out of here, Galilee, and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. Chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 7 now, verse 4. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. You're doing great things. Let's get out of this rural redneck area. Let's get into the city. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, if we read no further, we would think, that's good advice. Next verse says that it was done in unbelief. That was unbelief. That was a statement of unbelief. They certainly believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. There's no question about that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have wanted him to go to Jerusalem, right? Pull the rabbit out, no rabbit. No, we don't want that. We want you to go and do that for us. So why is this unbelief? We talked about each scenario in this, in this chapter that they were seeking human approval. They were seeking self-glory. They, they were seeking the pat on the back. Look at our guy. Look what he can do. And Jesus tells them, listen, you go ahead. My time... Kateros, it's not, the, it's not the same as my hour. Some of your translations in verses 6 and 8 may have the same uh, 
English word in verse 30 where it says hour or time. It's a different word. It means that it's not his, his time. It's not his appointed time. It's not, I'm not ready to go yet. And then in verse 6 it says, your time is always here. My time has not come. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that the world is evil. In other words, you guys are living in sin in the world for the moment, his brothers, and they're not going to hate you because you, 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 you're going right upstream with them. Me, I point out their sin, they want to kill me. So 8, he says, verse 8, you go to the feast, I'm not going, my time has not fully come. Yet, Jesus was on the Father's timetable. Verse 9, after saying these things, he remained in Galilee, but his brothers went to the feast. Then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. That was time. Jesus arrived sometime in the middle of the feast, 11 through 13. Uh, there was some confusion. ESV used the word muttering. It's a word you could pick up. You can use regularly if you'd like. We were muttering, complaining. We do it, but we don't use that word, but we do it a lot. Um, who was this guy? Who is this man? They're confused. Who is this one they call Jesus? And that's what this whole chapter is about, the identity of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of John is about, that you may know him, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, and knowing him and believing in him and having life in his name, chapter 20, verse 30. Verse 14 says that Jesus went up into the feast, the middle of the feast, in the temple and began to teach. Middle of the feast, a couple of days into it, Jesus goes into the temple to teach, probably in one of the outside temple court areas, maybe the court of the Gentiles, we don't know. The religious leaders, it says, were amazed. Did this guy go to seminary? Has he been taught by the very famous rabbinical studies that all of us have been under? No. Well, how does he have such command of scripture? How is he sitting there dialoguing in this discourse like a rabbi, and he's never been with any real rabbi? At this point, we said that the brothers, the crowd, the religious leaders, the foundation of their heart, their will, their desires, their affection was to be approved and praised by people to find their value, worth, personhood, and self-glory. They were either protecting themselves, pushing Jesus away because he threatened them, or wanted to bring him into town so they can get all the accolades that the world can offer. And Jesus says that's the opposite of faith. Pride and self-glory at its core is the longing for human approval. And Jesus says in verse 14, the antidote for pride and self-glory and self-approval and the accolades of people which is antithetical to faith. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him... The Father who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The religious leaders were caught up in their reliance on the law and keeping the law and, and, and being approved by others and how wonderful they are. Brothers were looking for accolades of the crowd. People were afraid of what others might say if we believe in Jesus. All bound up in unbelief. Self-glory is antithetical to God's glory. Self-glory is antithetical to God's glory. Jesus is saying that if pride, self-exaltation, self-glory is at the core, faith cannot be. Faith at its essence is an abandonment. Family, listen. Faith in Jesus is an abandonment of self and a humble acceptance and gladness of all that God's grace and mercy provides in who he is and what he has done for us. You can't seek it yourself and seek God. 
you see God at an abandonment of yourself. And true identity, when we abandon ourselves, we see his true identity. When we deny ourselves, we see him. When we deny our own wants and desires and just seek the face of Christ, he makes himself known to us. That's what the constantly being drawn back here in this gospel account. Faith in Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus Christ, glory of God, all that God is, all that God is doing. And in our text this morning, which I read, the true identity is what it's all about, again, that brings us to faith in him. The gospel according to John has been a book that's been used for Christians to give to non-Christians. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Read the gospel according to John. It is a great revelation, a great unveiling, a great picture, portrait, true identity of who Jesus really is. It's awesome. I recommend it to you. But as believers in Jesus Christ, as we continually seek the face of Christ, the identity of Christ, the glory of Christ, and we're being strengthened by the beauty, majesty, and incalculable worth of Christ, that too helps our faith grow. It's not just for non-believers. It's for us. And as we look at this, we will see what Jesus is saying about himself. Now, we'll see this under three things. We'll see that he's been instructed by the Father. He lets them know, I've been instructed. What I'm saying is not on my own. It's what the Father wants. He's commissioned by the Father. I'm not doing this on my own accord. And finally, he's restored to the Father. Where I'm going, you're not coming. Going back to the Father. Number one, instructed by the Father. Jesus says in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So Jesus begins his temple tort teaching by telling the crowd that he's not this lone ranger teacher. Not because Jesus isn't God, he is in the flesh. I could imagine Jesus could just say, okay, everybody sit down, I'm God, you're not. Nope, you guys can't tell me n- nothing. Just sit down, listen, take notes. I'm God, and uh, you're not, and just be quiet. Shut up. (laughs) Be like, okay, sir. You know, in that day, teachers of Israel did not prize originality. That day, they would love to quote famous teachers and famous rabbis and their sources of authority, and this rabbi said, they would love to talk about other people. And their, their brilliance would shine with all the rabbis they could quote of ancient days. If Jesus had declared that he was self-taught or, taught, or somehow had this original teaching that no one has ever taught, he would have been immediately discredited and, and, and kicked away or kicked to the curb for arrogance. So in appealing to someone other than himself is not unlike the other rabbis of his day. But here, Jesus is not quoting famous rabbis. He says that his teaching comes from a long line, not of rabbinic tradition, but claiming direct knowledge from God himself. The very origin of his message is for the Father gave to me. That's a different ballgame. Jesus appeals to his Father. His teaching is divine. And how would one know whether that to be true? And how do we know that's true of what Jesus said? Look at the text. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Piper writes this, The mark of his truth is a passion for God-exaltation, not self-exaltation. If your will 
is to do God's will, you can know whether Jesus is a true spokesman of God. The way you know if he is true is whether he seeks the glory of God above all things, which he did, end quote. Here's what I want us to see this morning. We talked about glory already. This is what I want us to see. Our wills, our affection, our wills, what we want, is naturally bent towards seeking self-glory for ourselves. But when we are truly transformed by the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit, when we receive this free gift of salvation through the work of Christ, through the person of Christ, when we come to know and to love Jesus as our ultimate glory, when God's love and grace has you captivated, the gospel has you captivated and begin to see, embrace, treasure each and every day, Christ above all earthly treasures, then you know that your faith is real and your Lord is true. What Jesus is telling us that when your will is, is to pursue God exaltation, when pursue exalting his glory, then you know that everything Jesus teaches is from the Father. That can only happen when God gives you a new heart. That can only happen when God gives you a new heart. Our cold, dead hearts will not muster up anything like this. It's about getting what we want, when we want it, how we want it. You want to know whether you're a real follower of Jesus Christ this morning? Do you want to know if Jesus is who he says he is? Ask yourself this question. Am I in pursuit of giving God the glory? Is he enough? Is what he wants for my life what I want for my life? Making much of his love and grace. We are not talking, listen, we're not talking about perfection. None of us are. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about perfection, okay? Uh, uh, we're talking about, not talking about sinlessness. We're talking about a desire to make Christ known, to love and treasure and seek his face. Honestly, some of you here this morning are, are, are getting somewhat frustrated with, with this whole obedience thing, doing the will of God. It can be a, a load upon you. The point is not that we become Christians after a certain God-approved level of some moral achievement, but a genuine Christ follower will be fundamentally doing the will of God. It's a faith commitment. D.A. Carson writes, God's will is not simply to be thought about and assessed as if God is the object we may politely examine, dissect, and discuss, picking and choosing what we like of him. The faith commitment envisaged, pictured here, this moral choice is properly Basic and renders impossible any attitudes that sets up as judges of God's ways. In other words, what he's saying, end quote, if you understand the beauty and the glory of Christ, obedience is the customary outcome. Not because we are earning God's love, earning God's grace, and somehow God will love me if I just follow him in obedience. That's religion. That's legalism. But because he loves us and he poured out his grace on us and he sent his son to die for us and because Christ has done everything for us in response to that. There's a heart that's changed to do the will of God in response to what Christ has done. Remember, religion is I obey, I, I follow the Lord, I do what he tells me to do, and he will love me and accept me. The gospel is he loves and accepts me because of Christ, and therefore I will obey. Major difference. Honoring God, that's what Jesus, Jesus is saying, listen, Glory seekers love to take credit. 
They love their titles and their credentials. They love to hear themselves speak. Jesus says, I have come not on my own. I have come to bring glory to my Father. God-honoring, God-glorifying role. That's what Jesus is saying. Not to himself, but to the Father. And then, you know, the actual rhetorical question, look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The obvious answer is, you know, Moses gave you the law, didn't it? He, he gave you the law. Here Jesus is trying to flesh out what is it that's the will of God. He's talking about the will of God. And remember what he's talking to? He's talking to Pharisees. They saw themselves as disciples of Moses. They took great pride that they were given the law. And Jesus says, you have the law, you don't keep it. You have the law, but you don't keep it. You're trying to kill me. I don't think that's in the law. Chapter 5 of John, if you remember, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. We're going to get to that in a moment, but I just want to bring it up because it's important here. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, uh, a paralyzed man, invalid for 38 years. He's one who was lying on the pool of Bethsaida, if you remember that story. Jesus tells him, take up your bed and, and go, right? Not like take up your box spring and mattress. And, you know, it's a roll-up mat, right? He says, you've been paraplegic, you've been laying here for 38 years. Take it up and go home. Then it says in chapter 5 that the Jews were seeking to kill him even all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which he wasn't, just their stupid rules, but he was calling himself, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus is saying, listen, pointing out your own flawed understanding of the law. Because the law revealed your sin and you still see and think that it will save you, but it will not. Paul said, if not for the law, I would not have known sin. The law says, thou shalt not covet. And you know what? Oh, my word, I am the biggest covetousness man on the planet. The law reveals sin. It doesn't save. Some Jewish people in that day perverted the law, thinking that it was the means of their salvation, but they refused to have the law, which is good and holy, convict them, indict them, and drive them to the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness in Christ. Sin revealed points us to a need for the Savior. Unless, of course, you're delusional. Look at verse 30. And the crowd is like, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? They didn't get the memo. There's a lot of people trying to kill him. Here we see the age-old tactic, right? You point out somebody's hypocrisy to go to name-calling. You're a demon. Like, I have nothing else really to say. I really have no way to defend myself. You're right, I'm wrong, so I'm just going to haul insults against you. That's, that's what they turn to. And these Passover pilgrims that have come from all over the, the region take Jesus to be some, side of, some sort of crazy mental lunatic who's paranoid. That's what they say. And Jesus is like, let me, let me make this real to you, okay? Let me remind you of what took place back in chapter 5. When, last time I was here in Jerusalem, verse 21, Jesus says to them, I did one thing. I did one deed. I did one work, healing of the paralytic, what we talked about in chapter 5. And you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man. Let me see if I get this right. You guys circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you guys really angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well? Like, duh. I know, very theological, but it's like, are you guys kidding me? The sign of circumcision, first of all, was before the law. 
of Moses. It was given to the fathers, Abraham. When Moses gave them the law, he incorporated the law of circumcision. Eighth day, you circumcise your male son as a sign of the covenant. Okay? But if the eighth day was on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath you're not supposed to work, they got a problem. Do we circumcise them, which is considered work, which the law says we shouldn't do? Or do we not circumcise them and we violate the law? So the Jewish people got together and said, you know what? It's better that we just follow the law of Moses. It's called work, but we're going to circumcise the boy to follow the law. So we're going to work, but we're going to do it on the Sabbath. That's what they did in those days. And Jesus is not saying that it's wrong, but he's like, let me get this straight. You want me dead because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. And you just circumcised on the Sabbath? See, it goes from the lesser to the greater. So it's a rabbinical tool. And it's incontrovertible. I mean, there's nothing they can say. Like, I made someone in... It's like, look, dude, look, verse 24. Guys, don't judge by appearances. You got it all wrong. But judge with right judgment. Present imperative. In other words, Jesus is implying, like, get it Right? You're doing this. Stop doing this. Stop stop judging with appearance. Judge with right judgment. That was an indictment both on their moral and and theological discernment, which they couldn't figure out, right? Self-righteous legalism is always an affront to God. And appeal to abandon this misconception about who Jesus is. He's trying to show them and teach them. He's from the Father. He's trying to get it right, guys. And and that's the tendency of hypocrisy and, and legalism. They love to look at people and immediately judge them. You know, I know exactly what's going on in your heart by just what you said, by just what you wear, by, by just what you drive, by just where you work. You've got to be careful. Right? We've got to be careful. Don't look and judge. Be discerning, yes. But the bottom line of what Jesus is saying is, I want to serve God's people, demonstrate God's glory, and you want to kill me. But those who judge rightly, he says, yeah. The point is, if you judge rightly, you'll know who I am. If anyone claims, he says, if anyone's wills do the will, God's will, you'll know who I am. You'll know that I'm teaching from God. Whether I'm speaking of my own authority or not, you will know if you're seeking his glory. Stop judging wrongly. Jesus is clearly demonstrating, as we move on, who he is. The son of God, because he teaches with authority. He he teaches by the authority of God. He's doing the will of God. He's giving God the glory Right? So he's doing authority. He's teaching by authority. He's doing the will of God. He's seeking the glory of God. And he's rightly interpreting the law of God. That's who he is. On, on the contrary, the unbelievers, religious people, and those in this crowd are seeking their own glory. They violate the law by wanting to kill an innocent man and unjustly interpret the law by making false judgment and application. What a contrast. Authority of God, seek his will, seek his glory, be your own guide, do what you want, wrongly interpret and falsely judge. Instructed by the Father. Look at number two. Commissioned by the Father. Verse 25, right? So this is, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty going on here. There's a lot of confusion. There, there, there's a, just people are not really sure. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem... Who are they? Natives of Jerusalem. Those who were born and raised in Jerusalem. They said, hmm, is not this man whom they seek to kill? Obvious answer, yes. He's speaking openly. They're not saying a thing. Can it be that the authorities themselves believe that this guy is the Christ? That obvious answer is no. Right? 
These Jerusalemites are like, ah, the leaders around here have their opportunity to stop, to seize, and to arrest Jesus, but they're just standing by, as they say, lump on a log. They're not doing anything. They were probably running their mouths when Jesus wasn't around, talking tough trash talk. We're going to get that dude when he shows up. And they're like, he's here. No, you guys ain't doing nothing. You guys are just standing there. You know, I mean, you know, acting more like cowards. You know that guy that sits behind his little laptop. Ooh, I get that one. You know, he's a coward. Like, here he's there. What are you going to do? The question, again, is what, who is this guy? No one's doing anything. No one's saying anything. They said they were going to do it. What is this guy all about? Who is he? Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, they say. And where the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. When the Christ comes, no one will know. They don't mean that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about the origins of the Messiah. That's not what they're saying. Back in that day, the, the, the belief was, the, the regular teaching was in that day that the Messiah would come, he wouldn't even know he's the Messiah until the end. That this power and anointing of Elijah will come and he will be rushed into the temple. It's a bad interpretation of Isaiah and Malachi where it says the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. Sort of like, we know him for a long time. Isn't when the Messiah comes, he'll just, bam, be empowered to show up, ready to, you know, kick butt and take names. But we know this guy. Lots of confusion. I read a story this week about two elderly women sitting on a porch one summer evening, a beautiful night together. And it's these two elderly sisters were just sitting there enjoying a peaceful time together. One woman was, was listening to the sound of the choir. Just a couple of doors down the local church. The other woman, a sister, was sitting and listening to the crickets chirping, both enjoying the evening. The one woman listening to the choir said to her sister, isn't that a lovely sound? The woman listening to the crickets replied, yes. And I understand that they do that by rubbing their legs together. (laughs) Some of us are confused this morning about who Jesus is. It's been said Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. I'll add legend. The bottom line is what are we to do with his claims? What are we to do with this man's claims, the teaching of such overwhelming wisdom, the character of such striking beauty, deeds of power and glory that's found in Christ? He's like nobody else. That was the problem. That was their problem. That's our problem. That's the problem of many today. And when you have that problem, you make up stuff. But it's serious. You can't get away from it. Suppose you get home and you, tomorrow you get in the mail a letter from the IRS, certified letter from the IRS. You open it up, and you read that you owe back taxes $3.5 million. You'll be like, this is either a joke. They're crazy. This is wrong. Something sent to the wrong person. But one thing you will not do is throw it in the garbage. You're not going to do it. You're going to find out what is this about. It's a serious claim. Do you realize what Jesus is claiming in Scripture and what the Bible says and how he has revealed himself? 
the magnitude of the claims of the teaching of Christ being directly taught by God because he comes from God, that is just something you cannot, we cannot just dismiss. No thoughtful person, no one breathing here this morning, no one well thought out in life cannot look at those claims and not do something. Verse 28, Jesus Look what it says. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. The word proclaimed means he lifted up his voice. He cried out. He, 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 he was stressing the, the critical nature of what he was about to say. Talk is over. Discussion ended. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple while all this was going on. You know me. And you know where I come from. That's either a statement of a question, like, do you know me? Do you really think you know where I come from? Or a fact. They knew about his half-brothers. They knew about his sister. They knew that he came from Galilee. They had a basic understanding of his human origins, but they did not really know his true origin and the reason in which he came to earth. Because they did not really know the one who sent him, the Father. In their minds, Jesus was acting on his own initiative. Verse 28, but I have not come on my own accord. He who has sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him. I come from him, and he sent me. So this question of his geographical nature, really Judea, Galilee, where does this guy come from, isn't what's really happened, but where is he getting this, this authority from? Like they knew where he was geographically, but the point he's making is not simply a merely a human source of authority, has he been divinely commissioned? And Jesus' answered that is yes. But they couldn't understand. They, 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 they could not be expected to know all this because they did not know the one who sent him. Had they known God, had they been doing God's will, as they'd been seeking God's glory, they would have recognized that Jesus was sent from the Father. But they weren't. So why is it important that Jesus makes it clear that his, his, his instruction is from the Father and now his commission, his send, sentness is from the Father? Why is that important? Let me just give you, uh, I think I got four things quickly, okay? Why is it important? We're talking about being commissioned by the Father. Why is it important? Let me give you some things. Jot them down. You can talk about it in community group. Number one, it speaks of truth. Jesus is not saying the one who sent me is true and trustworthy and real. They knew God was real. What Jesus was saying is, it is true, I am real, and I have been truly sent by the Father. He's pointing to the reality of his own truth. He was sent, okay? Now, truth is under attack in our age. Truth is under attack these days as if somehow we can change it. Truth, according to its origin, who is God, it's consistent with his mind, his heart, his will, his glory, and his being, because he is the truth. Truth is not ultimately a principle, a statement. Truth, in its origin, at its foundation, is God's self-expression of himself. That's what Scripture teaches us. Truth is the self-expression of God who became flesh, who took on bones and flesh and became like one of us yet without sin, Jesus said, uh, John says, and lived and tabernacled around us. MacArthur writes, in fact, the one most valuable lesson humanity ought to have learned from philosophy is that it is, 
It is impossible, listen, to make a sense of truth without acknowledging God as a necessary starting point. Truth is not subjective. It is not consensual. It's not cultural constructed. Right? People don't get together day after day, year after year, culture after culture, and decide what truth is. He says, and it is not invalid, outdated, irrelevant concept. Truth is theological. It is the reality of God who has created and defined it and over in which he rules. End quote. I've been sent by the Father. That's the truth. We can't change it. We either embrace it or we reject it. The truth. Number two. Jesus being commissioned by the Father speaks of his eternality. Okay? Being sent from the Father, commissioned by the Father, means he did not begin at the virgin birth. That he existed before that. He was with the Father who was sent into the world. You see that? John 5, excuse me, 8.58, when we get there, before Abraham was, he told the Jews, I am. Not I was, I am. I never existed. They understood what Jesus meant. He used, he used the same language that Moses, excuse me, yeah, Moses, in the burning bush. Who should I send me? And Yahweh says, I am who I am. Ever-existing, self-existent one. Never had a beginning, never had an end. And Jesus makes that claim. Right? And they want him dead. Contrary to what you hear about the Jehovah Witnesses, which is the cult, uh, that Jesus had a beginning. Jesus never had a beginning. In fact, we see that in John 1.1 in the prologue. In the beginning, in the origin, before the origin of all things, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God. With means face to face. And then it says, and the Word was God. What's so beautiful about John 1.1, there's relationship, there's distinctions, and yet there's indivisible. They're, they're, they can't be separated. They're co-equal, co-eternal, one in na- essence, nature, power, and will. I've been sent by the Father. So you have truth, you have eternality, and you know what else? Jesus being sent from the Father speaks of authority, which we talked about a little bit. He writes in John 5, Jesus speaks in John five nineteen. the Son can do nothing of himself unless, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does just like Him, in like manner, in the same way. I can do nothing on my own initiative. I hear, I judge. My judgment is true. It's just, it's right, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I am in His authority. I do as He has commanded, and I have the authority to do it. If you've been tracking with us, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to give life. Jesus has authority to judge all man. I've been sent by the Father. I come in His authority. I have the authority over all creation. We don't like authority. That's another thing under attack. I don't like authority. I don't like submitting to authority. I buck every authority I want. You only do that because we're rebellious. All of us love authority under certain circumstances. Let me give you two. Okay? You're on a thruway. There's a snow squall. You're trying to stay, drive your car, and staying out of bed. All of a sudden, somebody comes flying by you like a lunatic. Blowing the horn, scares the heck out of you. You almost fly off the road. He spins around you and just, you can't even see what's going on. You almost crash. Five minutes down the road, two state troopers has him pulled over. You're like, yeah. <laughs> I love it when the cops are out, all right? Or at the airport, uh, see somebody, and all of a sudden you see two people coming. Come in, you, we need to check you a little better. And you're thinking, <laughs> good, you need to check that guy like twice. Oh, yeah, the authority then is good, right? You like authority then. 
We all live under authority. Being commissioned by the Father means Jesus has all authority. He is truth. He is eternal. And finally, being sent by the Father, lastly, is Jesus is so beautiful. Jesus is under the Father's providential protection. Because he's sent from the Father, the Father has providential care over the Christ, the Messiah. Listen, look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. We looked at the hour in John 2. We'll see it in 8, 12, 13, and 17 chapters that the hour is the death of Christ. His crucifixion on a cross, his resurrection from the grave, his return, his ascension, his glory. John 17, give me, return to me the glory I had with you from the beginning. The hour has come. Glorify your son. Okay, that's what he's talking about. And what we see here, John's pointing out, is that the hour has not come and no one is touching Jesus until the Father had providentially determined when that will be, how that will be, before the foundations of the world. Think about that for a minute. Jesus said he was sent by the Father, declaring truth. He's eternal, has all authority. And all this I see just blending together in this awareness that he and his Father are providentially working out every detail, every circumstance, until the exact time, the exact place where Jesus will atone for sins on the cross. All this planned out, being executed in time and space from all eternity past. Does that blow your mind? Who among you, who among us, would dare and say, I am in sovereign control of all the circumstances and actions of others to accomplish that in which I set out to do? We can't even control our own actions. Right? That's our God. And I see that in Scripture, and I want to do the happy dance. There's all kinds of commercials now with the happy dance. Paul says this. He does a happy dance too, you know. Paul breaks out in a happy dance a couple times. One's in Romans chapter 11. He's speaking the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Beautiful. Truth and all these things. Listen, look at verse 31 as we move on. Many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs. And we get back to signs again. I don't really know if these guys are truly believers. We've already seen that signs and faith kind of be, can be a little bit spurious, their faith, because they're witnessing signs. We looked at that. We won't look at it now. We've got to move on. Let me just tell you one thing that D.A. Carson wrote. I thought this was good. He said, faith based on signs, which we talked about, is not strongly encouraged, though it is better than nothing. I don't know if that's an encouragement to you. I hope it is. I don't know. Lastly, restored by the Father to the Father. Look at, look at the last few verses here. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering. There's your word again. Try to use it this week if we can, okay? Stop your muttering. You'll be like, you'll be at work. You stop muttering. You say, what do you say, muttering? Yeah, we learned it in the Bible lesson. Let me, let me show you. You get a right opportunity to share the gospel just by muttering. <laughs> the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering. These things about him, and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. We had enough. Then Jesus, they finally stepped up. Then Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer. When I'm going, you cannot go. All right? Then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Right? Where I am, you cannot come. Verse 35, the Jews said, man, where's this guy going? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Verse 36, what does he mean saying, you will seek me, not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. 
So we see his teaching, we see his sentence, we see now he's returning. And Jesus obviously didn't get it, but he's talking about a sacrificial death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. Right? So death is not final. We talked about that, we sang about it, David mentioned that. Returning to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. That's what Jesus is, is heading towards. Okay? The people have no clue. The crowd begins to discuss it with each other. They obviously are in the natural. They don't understand the spiritual. The only thing they can think is he's going to the dispersion. With these Jewish people have been spread all over the land among the Greeks. That's where he's going to go. They missed the whole point. What I love about this passage, and I want you to see this with me. What I love about this passage is you can hear the dum 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 You know, the movie Jaws, I'm showing my age. Probably half of you weren't even born that day, but that year. But this, the shark is coming, and they're singing. And they're playing, they're drinking, they're having a great old time. And the shark, you know, the, there's, there's crowds gathering around him. There's, there's, the Jewish people hate him. The crowd don't know what to do with him. They're trying to kill him like the cops are coming. And Jesus just says, I'll be with you a little longer. Uh, where I'm going, you, you know, the one, I'm going back to the one who sent me. And uh, when you seek me, you won't find me, and you can't come where I'm going. Just so you know. Like, he's like, I'm, I'm totally disregarding all of your unbelief, anger, and hostility toward me. That's not, that doesn't faze me. I'm nonchalant about it because my time is in my Father's hands. Not much you can do about it. And I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to fear. I'm in the Father's hands. When my mission is accomplished, when everything is said and done, I'll go back to the one who sent me. The enemies don't have control over this. My father does. Now, there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, when my mission is over, when I go to the cross, when I'm sacrificed and I'm buried and I rise from the dead, I'm going to a place and your unbelief, your rejection of me, you will not come to me who I say that I am, and therefore you'll never be with me. Unbelief, rejection, hell. Belief, trust, heaven. Where I'm going, you're not coming. You're stuck in your unbelief. You won't listen. You won't believe in me. You're not coming where I come. I think that's what he's saying. But there is a sense in which Jesus says, where I go, you can't come because no one's sitting on the throne of glory like Jesus. We may, we may if you believe in Jesus, be with him in all eternity, but not in the same place he's at. Amen? Right? I, I think he's saying, in your unbelief, in your blindness... You, you, you can't come into the presence of God. It's only through me, and you are rejecting me. You know, Easter morning we celebrated and the resurrection. We called it the what? Proof of purchase. Because the tomb was empty, we know that the substitutionary dying in my place, sacrifice of Christ, paid the penalty that our sins deserve. The tomb is empty. The debt that we owe to God has been accepted as payment because of Christ. His resurrection is the proof of purchase. He paid the debt that we owe. In a similar way, Christ returning, being restored to the Father, is our guarantee that his mission has been accomplished, that the hour has been done, and that his ascension, his returning, restored relationship with the Father is now beneficial for all of us and those who have faith in his name will give, be given the grace and mercy of Christ. So let me ask this in a practical sense. I'll just give you two things to talk about and think about this week. What does Jesus' return, his restored relationship with the Father, mean for you and me this morning? Let me just give you two things. All right? He's been commissioned. He now is being restored to the Father. I'm going back to my Father. We'll look at it more when we get to John 17. Let me give you two. Number one. 
Because Jesus will finish his work on the cross and return to the Father, believers now have a permanent presence of God in their life. Permanent presence of God in their life. Jesus rose from the grave. Mary Magdalene says cling to Jesus. She held on to him. She wouldn't let go. And what does Jesus say? Let go of me now, Mary. Do not cling to me now. I have not yet ascended to the Father. See that? You see, we say, don't hold to me now. Um, uh, you're not going to be able to take me wherever you go. In my physical presence right here, I'm not going to go everywhere with everyone. Regardless of the bobblehead Jesus people got on the dashboard, he's not everywhere, right, in his physical body. If you hold on to me now, you will not have my presence in you, but if I ascend, the Holy Spirit will be sent to you, and you will never lose me. You, you, you will never be without my personal presence in your life. No matter the pain, the struggle, the hurt, the difficulties you face, I will always be with you. Don't cling to me now. I have not ascended, but cling to me always when I ascend. Ascension means letting go physical and receiving him into your heart. St. Augustine, a famous prayer, you ascended from before our eyes and we turn back grieving only to find you in our hearts. The ascension, the restored relationship means an intimacy with God through the Holy Spirit that is greater than Jesus' physical presence on earth. Number two. Number one, permanent presence. Number two. Because Jesus will finish his work on the cross and return to his Father, restored relationship with the Father, believers have a permanent propitiation Big word before God. Propitiation is the word atonement. Okay? So when Jesus restored to the Father, the Bible says in Philippians that his hour had come, he was obedient unto death, and now the Father has highly exalted, super exalted Christ bestowed upon him the name which is above every name so that in everyone will bow their knee in heaven and on earth, and they will what? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' restored relationship, stay with me two more minutes, with the Father places him in the very throne, cosmic throne room of God. The throne where there's not only power, authority, but where justice is wielded and served. That means Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. It means that he is able and willing and able and has the ability to intercede on believers' behalf. Hebrews 7, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, because Jesus ascended, he is able to intercede in the throne room of justice when any charge is brought against us he is our advocate first john says since he always lives to make intercession for us let me give you one more quote john piper christ is our attorney and his portfolio is his propitiation his portfolio is the atonement he stands before his father in heaven and every time we sin, he doesn't make a new atonement or propitiation. He doesn't die again and again. Instead, picture this. He opens his portfolio and lays the exhibits of Good Friday on the bench before the judge. Photographs of the crown of thorns, the lashing, the mocking soldiers, the agony of the cross, and the final cry of victory. It is finished. End quote. Family, that's the good news. 
That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the good news. So while there are many confused opinions out there about who Jesus is, we are called to believe the truth of all that he said he was, the testimony about himself. You know, it's kind of funny when someone is, is confused about church choirs making music, rubbing their legs together, but it's tragic, very tragic when someone's confused about Jesus, rejects his testimony, rejects his personhood, rejects his work on the cross of all that he is. Eternal separation awaits you. But when we see his beauty, when we see his glory, when we come to the table and we see as represented the symbols of the bread and the blood that was shed on the cross, that was been made available, this bread, this cup made available because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. This table is here for us to remember that Jesus lived and taught the truth about God with all authority in perfect obedience to the Father's will. It is to remind us that Jesus was sent by the Father. He was commissioned. The plan goes back from all eternity past. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down and I take it up again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But the table should also remind us, I wanted to remind us this morning, that his presence is made known to us because he ascended and returned to the Father and sent his spirit to reveal Christ to us so that we would see our need of, of a Savior. We would see the brokenness of our lives. We would see the sin that we are so prone to do and return from that and trust in him. It reminds us that Jesus is in glory. His presence can be known through his Holy Spirit, through the sacrifice that has been once and for all and has been accepted as payment for your sins. Do you know him? Do you love him? Will you come to him? And will you be encouraged to taking more and more and more glimpse, glimpses of who he really is, the Lord of glory, who's full of mercy and full of grace, full of truth, John tells us, and full of grace. So the band's gonna play. We're gonna have communion together. We're gonna confess our sins. Maybe it's the first time you're confessing you're a sinner and need grace. You're a sinner and you have violated and you owe a debt to God and you're gonna trust Christ as the only payment for that sin. The only debt that can be forgiven, the only way your debt can be forgiven is through Christ. And you'll come for the first time remembering his body that was broken as the bread is taken, as the cup is taken, remembering the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And maybe you're here and there's some sin in your life. You need to get right with God. You need to confess it but then repent from it, turn from it. And we'll do that quietly. We'll do that in our seats. Quietly put a curtain around your heart. And then when you're ready, when you're ready, after you've confessed and repent, come up. Grab the cup, grab the bread, and celebrate the Lord's work of forgiveness of the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for leaving us, not leaving us in our, in our sin, not leaving us without hope, not leaving us without witness, testimony, and truth declared by the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would make Christ known to us. Lord, we can't do it on our own. So Father, we ask as your people, as we gather together, that you would pour out your spirit so that we would see the majesty and beauty and incalculable worth of, worth of Christ, that we will not be rejected, that Jesus will not say to us, where I'm going, you cannot come, but say, come. As he said to the thief on the cross, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Lord, that's our prayer. Your spirit would speak to our heart that we would know we belong to you because of what Jesus has done for us. 
Help us to repent well and help us to worship the true Christ who's alive forevermore.